Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman Podcast. Do we have to talk about Europe? I'm afraid we do. We will be talking about Europe until... We die. Which, thanks to Trump, may be sooner than we all think. <laughs> Tell me what's, what's new and happening in Europe. Actually, we haven't talked about the French primaries. We could, we could talk about the French primary because it gives me a chance to show off my French accent, which I think makes me sound debonair and sophisticated. Thanks as well, because um, I, I know a lot about the politicians, but I every time I pronounce one of their names, I just scratch my nose and look awkward. So, François Fillon, which I think is how it's pronounced, yeah. Sarkozy's uh, old prime minister, defeated not only his old boss as prime minister, but his old boss when he was a minister, Alan Yupé, who, you you who was prime minister under... Chirac? Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, he is, you know, kind of as close to, in French terms, as you could get to a Thatcherite. Although the, these comparisons are always unhelpful because French politics is... It, well, it's sort of kind of like when people want to compare things to US politics. They look similar, they feel similar, but there are lots of really important differences. Um, I think this was really interesting when you wrote about Manuel Valls um, and his kind of attempt to kind of go and be the sort of centre-left candidate, that I just hadn't realised the sort of the basic level of, of anxiety, whatever you want to call it, about Islam, or in some cases flat-out Islamophobia, that just pervades the whole from left to right. And, I mean, he was the one who said bare breasts were more French than the burkini, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, the kind of... And, I, yeah, men weighing in on women's fashion, or male politicians weighing in on what, what women should wear is just never a good look. Yeah. Whether and, it's taking clothes off or putting them on. And as mayor of every, a small par- uh, Parisian suburb where he, he cut his teeth politically, yeah, his first elected job, although he kind of came up through the back rooms, as, as, as most French politicians do, uh, he campaigned against the opening of halal supermarkets. Um, Which is one of those things, isn't it, where... People always kind of camouflage it as a welfare argument, but it's it. You can usually tell that it's a proxy. For, I mean, this is for... the country of foie gras. They don't give a flying one about <laughs> the. I mean, these are the people who literally invented a foodstuff based on stuffing food, massaging down geese, a geese's, yeah. a geese's neck until it is so fat and bloated that its liver is especially good for a, a fancy pate. Um, the idea that oh god, you know, you can't possibly kill your meat in a halal way. That would be cruel. I mean, pull the other one. It plays Leo Marciers. Uh, it's just like. No, no, that's not what it's about. Yeah, that, um, I think that's one of the things that really surprised me when I just kind of, which I, again, you, you made the point very well that, you know, that kind of, that, we're here, we associate real anxiety over Islam very much firmly with the right. Yeah. Um, but that, it's not quite the same in, in France. But Fionn's, as far as I understand it, it's going to be a really interesting matchup. I mean, I think everyone expects the final round to be him versus Marine Le Pen of the Front National. Okay. Um, well, okay. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, so the interesting thing is, I think it is likely that Manuel Valls, the 
self-described Blairist candidate for the Socialist Party nomination will will not win because I don't know if anyone's noticed, but Blairism is not doing so well in internal elections on the left uh, at the moment. And then Arnaud Mountborg, who resigned from Holland's government over its right-wing turn in 2014, will be the nominee. He's much more from the traditional left. I don't think he has a punching chance of getting into the the second round himself. But he's a more viable candidate than Hollande, than Hollande right? Mm-hmm. Which means some of the vote will come back from the National Front, right? The worrying thing I worry about then is, because uh, as far as I understand it, Fionn is very Catholic, you know, he's, yeah. you know, and that really informs his politics. And he's not somebody who just has a faith and, you yeah. know, is a, a secular politician. Actually, weirdly, in a country that is obsessed with secularisation, his views on abortion and right to life and things like that are very traditionally Catholic. Yeah. Um, that's a bit alarming. His politics, I think you said, were sort of pretty close to Thatcherite in terms of he wants to cut half a million public sector jobs. You know, yeah. he wants to raise the retirement age. So is there not a slight concern that there will be a kind of almighty bun fight between those two and Marine Le Pen will therefore come through the middle? I'm going to heavily caveat this because I have not been to France uh, recently enough uh, so, you know, but I think it's very different. One, because there is a political tradition of the of voting against the extremes in the second round, whether it was the Communist Party or a fascistic party in the case of uh, the Front National. Um, so in some ways, in the referendum, the the cultural groove of British politics is Euroscepticism, right? Vote Leave was, was, was fighting on, on home turf. With Trump... The DNA of American politics is resentment against uh, African-Americans' economic advances, right? We saw it after Reconstruction, we saw it after the Civil Rights Act, and we've seen it again after Obama. Le Pen does not have as favourable cultural turf, um, and I think there will be less casualness in the French press about this kind of thing where people are going, a fascist and a Thatcherite, how could I possibly decide between the two of those? There are some people on the French left who will say that, but they will have a much more unsympathetic media background to that choice than people going, I can't decide between Trump and Hillary's Clinton. emails versus yeah, like, I'm going to you know, ban Muslims from the country. Yeah, so, so, so it is harder for her. And and everyone will sort of you know the, the elite will come together in the, at the end of the first round in a way they they wouldn't have but it is equally possible yeah you know, Mount Mountberg might take some votes away from her Macron will then be the only candidate from the centre left so he may be able to come through the middle um, Fillon may may turn out not to be that great on the campaign trail so so she could end up in the final round with Macron, which suddenly looks very different in terms of the context of, of the contest. So it is it is more open than people think, the French election. The next question then is is how big an issue it was. Because we all had a, you know, if she did win, like, mm. is that apocalypse now? Because I am, one of the things I thought was really interesting when we were covering the Austrian presidential election was there was a very big concern about Norbert Hofer, who is from a very far-right party, getting it. But actually, when he sort of talked, made whiffly noises about the EU, he had to row back from that because guess what? Other people in Europe do feel a lot warmer generally towards the concept of the EU than Britons have for decades. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, cause the interesting thing with, with her is there were two things which underlined his bigger defeat this time around. One, which is voters don't like being asked the same question twice uh, when they've, for yeah, so yeah, they, they really didn't like the Winchester by-election caused by the 
the closeness of the result in 1997, a much bigger win for the Lib Dems in, in the by-election than the, the general. The other reason was that he was to- seen as part of the kind of populist, right-wing, nativist international, which includes UKIP and the Eurosceptics, and they blamed Nigel Farage for some of the defeat. And the because the thing is, although Le Pen has been sitting there yeah, on Twitter tweeting excitedly whenever one of these incredibly right-wing forces wins, the crucial thing they all have in common is they are all slightly to her left. Uh, Trump is appointing white supremacists to his cabinet. He campaigned on a white supremacist ticket, but the primaries had allowed him to take on the brand of a party that, in American terms, is seen as being on the centre-right, right? Um and it's a more favourable political climate to that type of politics anyway. Five Star uh, is to the left of uh, of Le Pen, right? This is it, the, it's an Italian it's movement Italian, by Beppe Grillo. I mean, yeah, comparisons across Europe are, are difficult and comparisons to Italy are, are mostly just bad and you just they, they obscure more. But um, and I guess the same thing is true of Alternative for Deutschland, yeah. who got about 15% in the last yeah. set of elections. They do, I know, and there is a kind of, again... And, they're running against Merkel, who is on the centre-right. They still have got that kind of fringy taint about them. Yeah, but they are also, again, to the to the left of, of Le Pen. So it is harder for her. She is a more uh, a difficult candidate. But the important thing about all of this for Brexit is that the, the big thing, which weirdly Theresa May herself acknowledged in the FT last week, and no one really seemed to notice how remarkable this was, the big difficulty for Britain in its Brexit deal will be the priority of the EU27's leadership will be to show that you can't get a better deal from the EU outside the EU. The better Le Pen... So obviously if Le Pen does... Which is up there with Boris Johnson saying that Saudi Arabia are human rights abusers who've been sponsoring a proxy war, right? Yeah. In kind of... Yeah. But it's still quite something to sort of openly acknowledge it. Um, now, the the big difference with all of this is that Le Pen... If Le Pen wins Europe, will will the EU will collapse, right? The, the question of getting a, a better deal out of it becomes... Yeah. Will it, though? This is the thing I really want to interrogate, because that's... Why will it? Do you think she will then have an EU referendum which she will then win? Do you think those are two definite set-in-stone things if she wins? The Fifth Republic gives the presidency a fair amount of power, so her ability to change the rules, to change the constitution, to have a referendum on the EU uh, feels uh, more likely. But secondly, and this is where the comparison between Brexit and Trump and Le Pen, I think is one of the reasons why large chunks of the right-wing press, and it's time for my weekly bashing of The Spectator, hey, hey. Uh, I think one of the reasons why The Spectator has not got why Trump is so bad is this Brexit-Trump comparison, right? And they haven't understood that actually, ultimately, although there's a fringe of Brexiteers who you see in the way they're reacting to the court judgment, they just don't like democracy. Michael Gove, you know, I don't have time for him in, for his politics in many ways, but he's not going to attempt to obviate the votes of his opponents, which is something that the Republicans are trying to do and something that Le Pen would try to do. So once she's in power, the idea that that referendum is free or fair becomes slightly more That's uh, shaky. My, um, the, for me, the big, uh, the thing I think changes it slightly, and, and, and the, you can't do a read across, is that the, the Britain was concerned about EU immigration, right? It was concerned about Eastern Europeans mm-hmm. coming into the service sector and things like that. And I'm just not sure that's quite the same dynamic that's, that, that fuels anxiety in France. It feels that their immigration anxieties are much more about Muslim immigrants, in particular, much more from former French colonies from North Africa. Yeah. And that's not directly related to, you know, that's there's no simple message of kind of take back control at that point in the way that there is, you know, there was to sell Brexit to us. 
yeah, I think it is much more tricky uh, terrain for her. But, yeah, if she comes second, this is still the most likely outcome. Whoever the French president is, their, their main priority will be, how can I make sure that she can't turn around and go, look what a great deal you get out of leaving? The main priority of whatever coalition emerges from the German election. And if Martin Schultz becomes the Chancellor-designate for uh, for the SPD, Merkel's path to re-election gets a bit rockier as well. But whoever the German Chancellor is, their priority will always be to maintain the European project. And Germany's whole foreign policy, for obvious historical reasons, is based around the fact it feels it cannot act alone. Now that Britain has gone off in a sulk, its dependency on France is greater than at any point than it's been since... God, when did Ted Heath take us into the EU? 1973. Um, mm. So France wants a tough deal for Britain to to scare off Le Pen. Germany wants to be cleaved with France, particularly because Italy... And both of them want our problem. financial sector. And both of them want our financial sector. So all of this tri- leads into this idea that Brexit will be difficult. There will not be any backsliding on the four freedoms, which leads us to Keir Starmer's speech. These are some good segues I've got going this week. Um, I have not as yet caught up with Keir Starmer's speech, so you can tell me about it and therefore also the listens. The cliff notes from Keir Starmer's speech is he's saying that what Labour's approach for Brexit is, is controls over immigration and tariff-free access to the single market. Tough. Tough sell. Uh, yeah, I mean, the difficulty is, is I'm not really sure how that's different from what the Tories are saying they will get. Which, so in an odd way, that makes sense because... The success of vote leave is they basically went, look, you can have this control over immigration, but you won't have to pay for it, which we know is actually the difference between if you're a leaver and a remainer. Obviously, if you're our type of remainer, you'll really relax that immigration. But it was mostly was not whether or not you were relaxed that immigration. It was if you're a remainer, you thought you have to pay to get it down. Mm. And if you're a leaver, you thought you could reduce it without paying for it. And that's basically what Theresa May is saying. She said, I'm going to get immigration now and you won't have to pay. I think it's unlikely that she will achieve that, right? Electorally, it makes sense for Labour to be going, well, that's what we'll offer too. Apart from the fact that at that point, the question they're asking to the electorate is, which one of us do you trust and like more to get that Brexit? Who do you trust more in the economy and who do you trust more on being tough on immigration? And I just don't think that's a question that either of those you're going to go, oh, Labour, Stephanie Labour. Yeah, and so it kind of feels like an odd odd, uh, ground to fight them on, particularly because... But do you think they need to fight them or do you think they just need to oppose in the sense of picking holes in stuff? I mean, you know, we always have this thing about elections are a kind of a referendum on the governing party. I thought we talked about Emily Thornberry's PMQs last week and how she just effectively, you know, nailed them to the wall by saying, so are we going to be in the customs union or not? Actually, how worked out does Labour's alternative plan need to be? Because let's be honest, Vote Leave didn't have a crackerjack alternate like they didn't have a plan for what brexit was going to look like they just knew they didn't like the status quo right they were saying vote against the status quo not vote for anything in particular i i honestly don't know right because i mean i think there are a couple of scenarios it seems to me of varying degrees of likeliness right at the moment in by-elections what is happening is in a levy area the labor vote is pulled towards uh the two parties of leave um mostly to the conservatives a little bit to ukip because actually, if you look at the voter migrations, although UKIP look like they've slipped a little bit since the election, their 2015 vote is actually down quite a bit. They've gained some more Labour votes 
and that's made up for the migration of their Tory votes back to the Conservatives. Mm -hmm. And then in Remain-leaning areas, the Lib Dems are getting a boost from Labour and from the Conservatives. Yeah, so that happened in both Richmond and Sleaford, right? They were very different in terms of how they opened the referendum, but the, the migrations of votes, so basically UKIP to Tory, Tory to Lib Dem, Labour to UKIP, and some Labour to Lib Dem. Now, to be honest, if by 2019 Theresa May gets a Brexit deal and the election is about the economy, public services, etc., etc., just opposing what the government's done and not really having a line on Brexit which alienates anyone will be a great strategy for Labour if mm. people are not voting on the referendum in 2020. If there's an election at the moment, what seems very likely is that a bunch of votes from Labour will go to UKIP, a bunch will go to uh, the Liberal Democrats, and some will go directly to the Conservatives. Basically, everyone else either wants to be the party of the 42% or the 52%. Labour at the moment has a strategy for no one, which is a 0% strategy. Um, or it could be that the referendum is, is, is a live issue in 2020, and that will still happen, right? But no one, no one knows for certain, because at the moment the economy is still going well. If We expect there'll be more inflation next year. We expect there'll be pressure on the NHS. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if, I think public services are beginning to show the strain slightly. I mean, there was the really interesting analysis is about how much local councils particularly have cut stuff. And actually, yet satisfaction with local councils is still at fine levels. But I think with things like Southern Rail, you're beginning to see grumbly commuters. I think, mm. you know, some of that kind of, I think that there will be, actually as more and more of those that, you know, that are, I think there's still going to be a lot of austerity to come. And, and I think that might be where you start seeing some, a lot of just unhappiness with the government. My question is, I, yeah, at the moment, I don't really see that being t particularly to mm. Labour's benefit. Well, because, yeah, the, the local council's point, like they, a lot of services have been reduced and a, a small group of people with very uh, intense Oh, if you're an, you need adult social yeah. care, then you're completely stuffed. Um, but at the moment, there, there's still, yeah, every local authority still has at least one library, one one museum, one, th yeah, kind of... And we're now getting to the point where, and this is, there is a, a big difference between library hours reducing and one library closing to a situation where a borough has no libraries mm -hmm. and where the museums are just closed. And that is where where we go, we're, we're at in terms of the, the And your theory about the fact care. that the mild winter is covering up with a crisis in the NHS, yeah. which I think is also true, because I saw a man last night in shorts. He was wearing shorts in the street yeah. in December. But the NHS is... is, is yeah, it badly needs more money. And usually what happens at this time of year is elderly people go to hospital because it's cold, right? And they, they get ill. It's not cold. So, but yeah, of course, the question is, is mostly when we've had unseasonable weather in this new terrifying era of, of, of visible climate change, we've had the cold weather later. So will there be an NHS crisis in February? I think that's so. That's why I think is an interesting thing to walk, watch out for. I, I just, you know, and this again goes back to the, is Theresa May good or lucky? I think... The question about whether or not she's good is still unanswered, but she's certainly been. There's a number of things that she's been quite lucky about so far in, in her premiership. But that is all the Brexity goodness that I think we can probably fit for now. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY. So Theresa May has given a series of interviews in the run-up to Christmas um, about her faith and talking about growing up as a, a vicar's daughter. 
I know it's something that speaks to you as a vicar's son, and uh, I, my slightly more complicated heritage, which is my family are Catholic, so my dad obviously can't be a priest. Well, if he had, if he'd gone over from the Anglicans because of female priests, but he's not. He's a permanent deacon, which means he can do everything except confession and communion. But I also grew up in a very churchy household. I thought your tweet was really interesting when you said, like, she seems to have taken very different lessons from a vicarage Christmas. What were yours? So a couple of them, I just find it surprising that anyone who would 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 think my main thing is yeah, I'm not going to go to church once on Christmas Day. I'm certainly not going to go twice, as Theresa May does. But I think it was kind of at the end when she talks about oh, you know, I didn't have any female role models. I'm not sure that's that important. So what what do you think Jesus is other than a role? Model? I kind of think I feel he's, like he's not female though, is he? No, still? but I just I I just feel if you've if although you've, technically if you've bought into Christianity, you've kind of bought into the importance of role models, surely. I, I just don't quite get the interpretation of uh, of of it where you go our oh, role models. Nah, it doesn't matter. That's just noise. Some of it kind of just makes sense. Obviously, yeah, kind of. You, know, I assume that her 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 dad was not a bit trotty, but I just do find. Um, <laughs> Is your mum a bit trotty? He's a bit trotty. Yeah, sorry, I'm um, sure she doesn't listen to the podcast. It's this weird thing where people will go, oh, you know, I'm not looking forward to going home and uh, having an you know having an argument about how Trump is good or Brexit is great or whatever. Hmm. Um, when so in my morning email, uh, which I am contractually obligated to mention every week in the podcast. I put a post in by Zoe Williams going, Castro's bad. My grandmother, I'm not joking, emailed back explaining why actually Castro had been brilliant for the struggle uh, in South Africa. She was a member of the ANC. You know, and basically anyone talking solely about his faults needs to, you know, needs jog to on. jog on. Good grandmothering. Strong. Um, so yeah, we <laughs> Does she have... want to have a column? I mean, you know. So, we, yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> we have a very different family dynamic to a lot of people. But um, I think the other thing I found odd about it is I just don't understand how you could have some of the I would say fairly facile analysis about poverty if you've grown up in a clergy house so you suddenly realize so things like the universal credit which is a wonderful idea in theory but is based on the idea that no one has a complex lifestyle or that there are issues about family breakdown which cannot simply be solved by going here's a month's worth of money Go My on. problem with conservative Christianity, particularly because it's a big strain uh, in the Conservative Party, is that it doesn't seem to have any interest in Jesus's own life or teachings. Uh, I mean, you, this is the thing well, that this I could be a controversial episode. Well, no, but I, I and I mean, I mean, this is something that my mother would continue to say when you grow up. She was an RE teacher uh, as well, so it was quite it was quite a religious household. But you know, Jesus was a, a, effectively a radical communist, right? Leave your possessions behind and come and follow me. Yeah. He overturned the moneylenders in the temple. He was not a kind of striving you know, C2, D2, we wanted to have a nice car and three holidays a year. That was like, that. that's what I find is kind of the appropriation of of Jesus to support kind of conservative policies I find quite unhelpful. Yeah. Um, particularly, I remember a couple of years ago, we had Rowan Williams guest editing and he was, you know, he, he made some criticisms of the austerity policies and people went nuts. Like this was some crazy thing that, well, how could a Christian possibly criticise austerity? And I was just like, are we forgetting that like, Jesus would have probably not been, you know, into punitive measures that were primarily directed at the bottom decile. Like, yeah, this guy also this kind of slightly weird thing was like, oh, he should keep his nose out of it. It's just like, I mean, 
I can, I can, I again, can see. that was like, but, but that was Jesus, you know, render yeah. unto Caesar, unto Caesars, right? Yeah. He had, to, he again, he also faced exactly that problem. And eventually he became a political problem mm. um, about, you know, to, to the Romans. And that's what it led to his execution. Like, it's not, it's all, it's all kind of there in the, in the story. But that's, so that's my primary problem. My secondary problem is um, I don't like the sort of conflation of it as a badge that indicates goodness. And I used to be quite much more radically atheist like in my in my teens and, and early 20s and now I think about the fact that you know when we had Christmas dinner I don't know if it's the same for you I, it was not the same in the sense people weren't phoning our house with problems because you know you have a parish priest for that but we would always have a couple of old ladies from the parish who didn't have anywhere else to go and as a kid obviously I was incredibly resentful of that I was just like but Christmas is about me getting presents not having to make chit chat with you know crotchety people um but that's that is the kind of that's the total that's the kind of the selflessness right and the giving that I think is really important about Christianity and that's why I just think that's not how it comes across in public life right it's like uh, I must be good because I'm a Christian too often rather than actually are you living your values yeah I think yeah that does sort of uh, sometimes irk me um I realize this makes the fact that you make fun of the way I answer the phone even more unfair because that's this is I'm fascinated by how to, if Theresa May also does the kind of Christchurch vicarage. How can I help you? Um, which I even do occasionally when my wife calls. Which what, is a bit you weird. say Christchurch vicarage? No, I'm sorry, so Stephen Bush speaking. She's like, yes, I'm I'm aware. Um, but the other interesting thing about this is the kind of fairly quiet influence of Christianity, not just in the history of the Labour Party, but as a force within the the, the Labour Party today. Uh, yeah. I'm really interested because it it doesn't get talked about a great deal. No. Uh, I think uh, Chris Cook wrote a good piece for the FT a couple of years ago about actually, yeah. I think, the strain of it, particularly through more through the Conservatives. But it is something, there are quietly quite a lot of Christians in the Commons who are reasonably devout in whatever way you, yeah. you mean that. I think um, Nicky Morgan is Nikki certainly Morgan, a pro- practicing um, Christian. Um, Gavin Shuker on the Labour Gavin side. Gavin uh, our own regular podcast listener, Johnny Reynolds. Uh, him, I assume, and his many very attractive dogs. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can't comment. Oh, yeah, his, his Christmas card had attractive yeah, dogs attractive on it. Dogs. Um, but, you know, but it, it, it kind of isn't... It's funny, isn't it? Because I do think there is a point to saying it doesn't get kind of... People don't talk about it. And, that, and I don't know if necessarily they need to be afraid of it because actually one of the things that Sadiq Khan has shown is the way that you can talk about your religion in a way that isn't saying, uh, you know this is my tribe and these, and we're all the right, we're the people who are correct. Like he is very ecumenical. Yeah. And like, I saw a picture of him just at a Hanukkah service. Um, but, but actually sort of making that part of your public persona, I don't think it should be stigmatized. I think the thing is, I think one of the nice things in Britain is I don't think it is all that much. And the nice thing is you can't necessarily tell from people's voting records, for example. So, so yeah, the interesting thing about say like, so Liz Kendall's uh, nominations, actually the, the, there were lots of people there who weren't, you know, who weren't. There's actually the strongest correlation for nominating Liz Kendall, oddly enough, was Christianity, even though Liz herself is is not a believer. And you wouldn't necessarily guess from those. Those aren't people who've gone who go missing on equal rights issues, for example. So I think in some ways it's quite nice, and people don't necessarily feel the need to continually anchor everything in what they they do. Although obviously, when they they write longer pieces, it will sometimes be something that they talk about. There, there's a lot of quite interesting stuff in. I'm going to get my Catholic papers confused in the Catholic universe. I think there's the Catholic Herald, the tablet, and then yeah, and then there's another one which I presume is one you're talking um, about. 
written by various MPs there. I think one thing which is a bit sinister is the way that the right has now started to properly mainstream this Christmas is under threat. So some MP asked Theresa May a, a question about, oh, do people feel worried about Christmas? I mean, one, this idea that liberalism, having failed to win the EU referendum, failed to win a presidential election, let's face it, it's not having a great time inside the Labour Party. It's going to go, do you know what's a really popular cause that we can take on, that everyone will be with us about? Let's take down Christmas. It's powerful enough for, yeah, to take on Christmas. I mean, it's for the birds, really, isn't it? I don't know. I just see that as pure um, culture warring, uh, which is, you know, there's uh, go out in any high street and people are not afraid to say happy Christmas. You know, like this is, you're pushing on an open door because it's a brilliant excuse for anybody who wants to make money to sell you know, it really overpriced candles to people. So that will that you know that's that's what will protect Christmas. Like Christmas is pretty well defended because it makes people money. And on that note, happy Christmas. I know it's like a SIF piece about Christmas. The real war on Christmas should start now with you know the turtles. Um, but yeah, I know I, do, I I I think it's interesting. I, I think I would like to talk to more MPs about their faith because I think sometimes it's it's really nice, but other times it does worry me. Like in the case of Tony Blair, I think I do find that slightly concerning that he had a sort of sense of divine mission about Iraq, and I think that is something that actually you should know about someone. Like I can see why they didn't do God, but I think in that case it would have been helpful to understanding his thinking. What um what is your mum going to do for Christmas? Uh, for Christmas, she is going to resent the fact that I'm not going home. Ah, oh, I kid, I kid. I'm sure she's not going to resent. Um, so she's got two, three churches now, mm-hmm. but one of them is semi-defunct on the day itself. So she's got midnight mass, another service. Then I think she's going to do lamb. Then she's going to come back. Then she's got an evening service. Then she's going to watch Doctor Who. That's nice. Yeah. My parents are in... Um, New Zealand for Christmas. No, they're in Australia for Christmas, which means actually Dad probably won't preach. He's got an arrangement when they go and visit my brother's family that, you know, like a like a rapper does a guest verse, yeah. he can kind of come in and do a guest sermon, which I imagine totally bemuses everybody. Um, but it must be quite nice for the, for the incumbent vicar not to have to write uh, theirs. Yeah. I think, yeah, the, the, slightly, the thing which has been slightly odd for me is growing up, Mum was an urban vicar and... Most people go home to the country, they leave the cities at Christmas. Well, I'm not leaving the city at Christmas this year, but yeah, lots of people do. And so I think you were more likely for the people who did come to the Christmas service to be people who might be in some state of Mm. crisis, whether it be financial, emotional, or or both, which meant that we were more likely to to acquire guests. Waifs and strays. Waifs and strays. I realised weirdly, having already ordered it, I've ordered our Christmas meat and then I've mentally added on the idea that we might have two unexpected guests. It was only after I paid for it that I realised, wait a second, what, what unexpected guests do I think we're going to pick up when we wake up in the morning, open our stockings and I don't know, do whatever it is. Then what do secular people do on Christmas morning? I honestly have no idea. Box set. Box set, right, okay. Cool. I think that's what I'm doing. This, that's my Christmas. Again, I'm not going to see family this Christmas. I'm going to sit in my house and watch a box set. What's a Christmassy box set that I can watch? We've already watched Love Actually for the year. We got that one ticked off. Well, obviously, the best Christmas movie is Nightmare Before Christmas, followed by Muppet's <gasps> Christmas Carol. Muppet Christmas Carol! I haven't watched that for... Yes, it's definitely time for rewatch. Well, on that um, happy um, secular note, <laughs> um, do send us your recommendations if there are things that we should watch on Christmas, as both of us are snubbing our families this year. And now it's time for a section we call... You Ask Us. 
So I've been hoping you wouldn't do that every time. And the one time I paused, you stopped and looked briefly confused by the fact I'd paused to let you sing. Um, well, I thought I would do a new cool thing, but then I, I thought I would wrap it. And then I remembered that you can't, A... You can't wrap a three-sentence title? And B, I'm from the Midlands. Okay, well, so the, the questions we got this week are not why is Helen so tragic, but I'm sure <laughs> those, those will be the bulk of our mailbag this week. Uh, there was a really uh, good one, I, I thought, um, uh, from several people. Um, why is Theresa May so determined to include international students in the migration target? Voters like students coming here, universities' bank balances like students coming here, research excellence like students coming here, our soft power like students coming here. Why? I think it's because it's one of the only groups that you can definitively bar and just instantly... I think she's gone for easy, low-hanging fruit of, like, here is a quantifiable group of people who aren't going to, like, visa overstay, who are, you know, are applying, who are a very quantified group that, you know... And uh, and do you know what? This, I, just, I just need to cut some immigration. I'm going to cut these people. But as you say, it's mad. Like, without... The fees that overseas students pay, all our universities are really, really quite stuffed. And as you say, like, also, people don't really object to students, right? That's not what, when you hear people's anxiety about immigration, it's not, it's not really students that worry them. Yeah, people, people are intensely relaxed about students. Do you think there's anything more to it just than, than she, like, you can point at them and go, that's a group of immigrants that I can identify, get rid of them? I also think there's an element that Theresa May doesn't respond to dissent well. Um, We see this with this expensive Supreme Court case. Then A, she is highly likely to lose. But B, there is a majority in Parliament to trigger Article 50. Yeah, as you proved in the last vote, which was like 540 people in favour of it. It's just that she, she does not need to do this, right? It is the action of someone whose reaction to being challenged is to turn around and go, all right, then I'll have you. And I... She she finds the argument that higher education is a business distasteful. Um, I don't know how that squares with having been a member of the Conservative Party for the last 30 years, but let's just roll with it. Um, and yeah, and because she had clashes with George Osborne about it, she's already had clashes with Boris and, and Philip Hammond about it. And I think this is an, an interesting running theme of the May era, right? Well, the psychodrama. Yeah, and just taking things personally. I think the settling old scores thing is a bit funny, really. When you go, like, there's, you know, there's that great saying from um, Yes Minister, which is, you know, in defeat malice, in victory revenge. And I think that's kind of seems to be the theme of her premiership so far. There is a certain kind of, like, here are all the people who annoyed me earlier in my career, and now I'm in a position to stuff them. But it does have a problem. I can't remember who wrote this this week, so I'm stealing, maybe even you, I'm plagiarising someone, which is that there are too many backbenchers, conservative backbenchers, who just think that they're out in the cold forever. What's the thing? I can't remember who... I, in fact, did write this in. Was it you saying that they they think basically all that the only thing you could do is get in a time machine and go back to factor from the start? So, yeah, so so one backbencher did say, like, yeah, the... But they said, I just kind of feel like, what's the point? The only way she would like me is if I backed her from the beginning. Which George Osborne had a, a problem with, uh, with as well, because there was a lot of resentment from white male Tory backbenchers who said, well, look, unless I'm an ethnic minority or a woman, or I'm a close personal friends of George, then I'm not getting anywhere in this party. What's the point? And so they kind of huffed and puffed and stumped up and down a lot. Um, but I think that is now more widely felt that there is a very kind of tight circle, and if you're not in it, there doesn't seem to be any way to get into it, which is a problem for her in terms of, of, of party management. You know, it will be the Conservatives who destroyed Theresa May in the end. I'm I'm afraid to say. I think. Yeah. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.